0: Okay, so you guys are journeying through the book of Ruth. What an amazing book. I I can't believe there's not some blockbuster movie out yet that's just like, it's the perfect story. It's got everything in there. Maybe one day it'll happen, but I know you've been looking at Ruth a lot and and, uh, this whole theme of Ruth being a refugee, but today we're gonna look at chapter four, and we're gonna mainly look at Boaz And Boaz, not just the character of Boaz, but how Boaz is actually a picture of Christ. But I, I found this. This is great. So I know that in the book of Ruth, there's just incredible um, principles for even relationships about finding that one, that special one that you're going to marry. But I found this, and uh, want to read it to you girls here. <laughs> to all the girls who are in a hurry, to have a boyfriend or to get married, a piece of biblical advice. Ruth patiently waited for her mate, Boaz. What a great name, Boaz. While you are waiting on your Boaz, don't settle for any of his relatives. Broke as, <laughs> Poaz, as, lying as, cheating as, dumb as, drunk as, cheap as. Locked up as, good for nothing as, lazy as, and especially his third cousin, beaten yoaz. <laughs> Wait on your Boaz and make sure he respects Yoaz. Right there. <laughs> <laughs> <coughs> so let's look at Boaz. Chapter four. Now, before I read, these are stories, you know the Bible is a story. It's the grand story. The Bible's just made up of a bunch of narratives of, the, of, of his redemptive plan. And um, the entire Bible, we call it the grand narrative of God's story, which is made up of a bunch of smaller stories. But what I love about that is that God ministers to us and he speaks to us in story because the gospel is God's story. And God takes your story. The amazing thing about the gospel is he takes your personal story, the story only you have lived, and he wraps it up in his story. And so we're going to talk about that today, but let's look at verses 1 through 12. And now Boaz had gone up to the gate, and he sat down there. And behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz has spoken came by. And so Boaz said turn aside, friends, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. He took 10 men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. And so they sat down. And then he said to the redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. And so I thought I would tell you of it and say, Buy it in the presence of those sitting here, in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, will redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one besides you to redeem it. And I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. And so Boaz said, the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth, the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Well, then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. And now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, the one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other, and this was the manner of attesting in Israel. And so when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. And then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Chilean and to Malon. Those were his sons. And also Ruth, the Moabite, the widow of Malon. I have bought to be my wife, to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. And then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act Worthily, in Ephrathah, and be renowned in Bethlehem, and may your house be like the house of Perez and Tamar, born to Judah because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. This is God's word here. This is a s- just a story about redemption, and I want to talk about redemption because what we're seeing, if you notice through that text, there is a redeemer. So there was someone in the picture, in human terms, that was to bring redemption to this situation. And you guys know the story, you know, Elimelech, they went to Moab, there was a drought in the land. He took his wife, Naomi, his two sons, and basically, Elimelech died, his his sons died, and so there's Ruth, uh, there's Naomi, and with her two daughters-in-law, and Ruth, if you remember, she said, where you go, I will go, and your God will be my God. And so she went back to Bethlehem with Naomi, Ruth did, and so she's gleaning in the fields, and Boaz sees her out there gleaning in the fields, and he says, "Oh, you don't have to glean with the other poor people. I want you to I, I want you to harvest the fields." And so he brought provision for Ruth, Boaz did. he brought protection for Ruth. And we're just seeing this amazing guy, but uh, th- there's. Great characteristics about Boaz that we're going to look at just as an example. But even more than that, Boaz is a picture. He, he's pointing us actually to Jesus. When Jesus, after his resurrection, he was walking with his disciples, and he basically said, you know, all of the scriptures, starting with the law and the prophets and all the scriptures, they're all pointing to me. So whenever we come to these stories, It's an amazing story, and we we see the example in the individuals, mistakes of people, and even the right things that they've done, but all of these stories, like I mentioned, these narratives are pointing to the grand narrative of Jesus Christ, and that's exactly, if you can just sort of do inventory and reference all the studies you've had up to this point, and even this morning, they're bringing us to Jesus, and I can't think of a better. Better story in the Bible that points us to Jesus, and we're going to see that Boaz is a type of Christ. So he's, as we just read, he, his whole agenda is to redeem the land, redeem the inheritance um, that was lost, because everything uh, Naomi had was lost—all of her land—and that when you had anything, you had land. Okay, redemption. Redemption is at the it's at the core of the very nature of God. God is always redeeming. I want you to take your personal circumstance. I want you to take your past, your failures, your mistakes, your regrets, your dysfunction, the, your family, whatever it is, God has never stopped redeeming in that situation. God is always redeeming something with every person, with every situation. And so to understand that about God, his redemptive nature, is to understand God himself and, and the, the ways of God. Okay, And that's what we see in here. So I want to look at this picture of Boaz, but how we can live redemptively. Because what Boaz is essentially doing is he's, he's re- living a redemptive life. His very existence and his character is like Christ in that he's living redemptively. He's redeeming a very broken, kind of hopeless situation. So there's four aspects to live redemptively. I don't know if you're a note taker, but you can just remember these things. To live redemptively is to live without partiality. To live redemptively, too, is to live without self-ambition. To live redemptively, thirdly, is to live sacrificially. And then fourthly, the, the beginning, the very start of living redemptively is being redeemed yourself. So let's look at that. To live redemptively is to live without partiality. Boaz, he came to the gate. Verse 1. He came to the gate. Now the gate is where the leaders of the community would gather. This is where business transactions were made actually in recent ex- excavations they're finding like at the at the city gates these benches and sitting areas where you'd come because if you had land, you would do business in the city, but you had to go check up check up on your workers and so you'd go out the gate and so you'd be coming in and out of the gate in your just basic daily business um, activity so at the gate, this is where deals were made. This is where um, contracts were written up. And in this case, it was just verbal contracts with with witnesses. But this shows us that Boaz was a very important man. He was certainly a wealthy man. He was an influential man. And so he was accepted here in um, in the assembly of the elders and the civic leaders of that time. And that's amazing to me, because we look at the stature of Boaz, but look at how he's treating Ruth. Ruth is a Moabite. You know, she shouldn't even be in this situation. I mean, she's completely an outcast. And actually, according to the law, in Deuteronomy 23, it says there that a Moabite, neither a Moabite or an Ammonite, they shall not enter the assembly. And so there was this stipulation that this foreigner wasn't to be welcomed in to the community. So even just that alone, we see the redemptive work through Boaz. But what I see in Boaz, first of all, to live redemptively is to live without partiality, is he was no respecter of persons. He, He cared for the poor just as much as those who had much. He cared for the outcast just as much as those who are in the community. And that's an amazing character trait. Because we live in a broken city. We live in a city with all kinds of needs and different economic statuses. Um, You know, there's there's outcasts. There's people, there's the have-nots. There's, you know, it's just a melting pot. But the redemptive person, the person living redemptively, looks at everyone the same. Because when you really think about it in the gospel, we're all the same. We're all at the same level. We're all sinners in need of a savior. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We're all broken in different ways. Maybe you're broken morally and you've just you've messed up in your life. And you're, you're living with that <coughs> guilt and regret of, of decisions that you've made. That's brokenness, but maybe you're just a very moral person and you think you have it all together. Well, you're broken too, because you're broken with pride, and self-righteousness. See, every single one of us are broken, and when Jesus came, he was criticized for um, hanging with the, you know, the the drunkards and the the outcasts. So, we see that Boaz. He lived without partiality. <laughs> I think of when God told his people when they were coming into to the promised land, this is kind of a fulfillment that God spoke through Moses. He said, when you c- get there, because you're going to get there. The land is promised, and you're going to come in, and I'm going to give it to you. And when that happens, I want you to take care of the poor. I want you to take care of the marginalized. The role of the believer, the role of the community of Jesus Christ is to live in the city without partiality, reaching out to the marginalized, receiving everyone in to the family, because that's how big our God is. And so God is always redeeming. He's always in a broken situation, a broken relationship, a broken marriage, a a broken system. He's always doing something redemptively in it, and he's always doing it through his people, okay? But the only ta- only time that we'll be used in that way or experience that if we can live without partiality, all right? So to live redemptively is to live without partiality. Secondly, what I see in this story is to live redemptively is to live without self-ambition. Now, I want us to... Pay attention to this. So we see the Redeemer here. Now in the Hebrew, it's the Goel. The Goel, or literally the kinsman redeemer. So in Leviticus chapter 25, you can read that some other time, but basically, we're given God gives his people a law to abide by. Because he didn't want anyone, he didn't want his people to take advantage of one another. He he didn't want to remove the element of hope in his people, he didn't want um, his people to capitalize on the misfortune of another person. So he set up systems in place, according to the law, that even though if you went through tough times and difficult times, and just like Elimelech, he, he died, and here Naomi lost everything, that there was always a way in God's community to bring it all back. See, it's all part of the redemptive heart of God, the redemptive nature of God. And so in Leviticus 25, there was someone called the goel, the kinsman redeemer, and what the kinsman redeemer was was, so if the husband died because the wealth was transferred down, you know, through the offspring, <coughs> so Naomi lost her husband and her two sons, so there's no way for the, in, you know, all of the in, um, the estate and even for her name to be transferred down. So there needed to be a son. And someone had to redeem the land, but in redeeming the land, also had to redeem the women as well. So this was the kinsman redeemer, the goel. There was one in line, had to be the closest relative that had the first right of refusal to take the land, to take the inheritance, but redeeming the land would also redeem these women. Okay? And this was a way that God would give things back to the family and perpetuate, you know, the um, the inheritance with the family. So Boaz comes to the city, he approaches the nearest kinsman, the, the Goel. He said, You're the you're the closest relative, you're the Goel, you're the kinsman redeemer. Do you want to take the land? You have the first right of refusal? He said, Yeah, I'll take it. And then Boaz said, "Yeah, but in taking it according to the law, you're going to have to take Ruth and Naomi as well. You're going to have to take Ruth as your wife." He said, "Wait. I'll take the land, but I you know, this Moabite woman, I can't I can't take this uh woman." And so he refused, and so we see that Boaz took a sandal and he exchanged it because that's what they do in those days and you know, he got his soulmate, <laughs> you know. But uh yeah. <laughs> My wife told me not to say that. <laughs> <laughs> and she was right again. <laughs> but I want st- to say, this is a very important thing. Because in Leviticus 25, it's in the context of the year of Jubilee. Now, this is important stuff here. The year of Jubilee and the Kinsman Redeemer existed up until the year of Jubilee. Because what, what if you lost everything and you know you, you die before the year of Jubilee because the year of Jubilee was every 50 years. When all, of di- all the debts were canceled in the land, all the land that was part of that family w- would be restored back to that family. It was a year of Jubilee where everything, it was like a reset button for the nation and for God's people. And everything would go back to its rightful owner. And it was truly a year of Jubilee. The kinsman redeemer, the goel structure was put into place to exist up until the year of jubilee. So the, the, the land, the inheritance would be redeemed, that the, um, the inheritance would be, um, you know, continue on through the family up until the year of jubilee, which would happen for everyone. So this kinsman redeemer, this goel, existed up until the year of jubilee, but you can't understand the kinsman redeemer until you understand the year of Jubilee. But you can't understand the year of Jubilee unless you understand the Sabbath. Very important here. On the seventh day, when God created the earth, he rested, right? He spoken to existence the planet. And even God as the creator, he rested. But he was setting a pattern for us. And then he commanded his people, I want you every seventh day, You're going to take a rest. You're going to work six days, and then I want you to take a rest. Now, that wasn't only just smart, just physically for a person to get that rest, but it's much bigger than that. The Sabbath is such a massive aspect of the narrative of Scripture and of the gospel because it speaks about what God wants to lead us into, you see. And even in God's people, not only was there a Sabbath day, but there was a Sabbath year. So every seventh year, you would take the whole year off. Any takers? <laughs> Work six years, take a year off. All right, so God wanted them to have a year off every seventh year. Amen. <laughs> and um, because God's heart was for his people, and it was, there's, there was a meaning behind that. God wanted his people just to trust him. <laughs> he, he, there's, there's self-ambition, and then there's godly ambition. Ambition is, is not bad in and of itself, It's neutral. It's like money. Money's not evil inherently or, or good. You know, it says that the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Money's neutral. It can either be used for good or for bad. The internet is not inherently evil, but it's how you use the internet, you see? So ambition is not inherently evil. It's just what you're ambitious about. And the whole point of the Sabbath, the kinsman redeemer, the year of Jubilee is that God wanted to stay at the very center of society and at the very center of God's people, at the very center of our ambitions and how we see our wealth and our property, how we look at our success and our possessions, you see. And so he wanted them to observe the Sabbath to keep him at the center because when, we're, when we have self-ambition, it means that we're at the center, So we have to ask the question, why do we have money? Why do we have jobs? why do we marry? Why do we do the things we do? Why do we buy houses? Why why do we succeed? And if we're succeeding for us, we're at the center of our universe. But in self-ambition, there's no rest. There's just striving. And and our character, it, it, it crumbles. But God always wanted to be at the center. Actually, Israel failed to observe that set Sabbath year. And, um, you know, here the Sabbath year is coming, and one farmer would say, you know what? I'm not going to leave the fields. I'm going to step ahead. He's wanting to maximize his wealth. He has self-ambition. And so he said, these other guys can take a year off. I'm going I'm, I'm to make another year's profit. And so this, this mentality started taking over the nation of Israel. So for 490 years, Israel failed to observe the Sabbath year. For 490 years. And God said, and he he, he said through Jeremiah, that that is the reason why you're going to be in captivity. So do the math. 490 years. How many years were they in captivity in Babylon? 70 years. So their discipline was a direct correlation to them The sin of, you'd think it was some gross sin of idolatry or something, but it was really the sin of failing to enter into the rest. See, we don't, we can't understand (coughs) the kinsman redeemer, year of Jubilee, unless we understand the Sabbath. And the Sabbath rests to the Lord. Now, here's what it means to us it's good to take a day off. Some of us can't take a year off every six years. That's all right. But the point is in Hebrews chapter 4 the writer of hebrews said look the sabbath is a shadow it's a picture of the gospel that god wants you to enter into his rest to cease from your own labors and from your own works your own striving trying to please god trying to impress god trying to you know attain god but enter into the rest of the grace of the lord jesus christ because on the cross God sent His own Son Jesus Christ, to die in our place. He gave everything just to have us. He gave everything just to receive us. And on that cross, Jesus said, "It is finished. To tell us die. Paid in full. It is finished. The work has been done. There's nothing you'll ever do to add to what Jesus has done for you on the cross. And there's nothing you'll ever do that will take away from what Jesus has done for you on the cross. And by faith, God wants you, spiritually speaking, to enter into the rest of the Lord that he has provided for you through his own son, Jesus Christ, and to rest from your labors. So it's not about a Sabbath day. It's not about a Sabbath year. It's about living a Sabbath life. A life of rest that even though it's going bonkers at work, you're at rest in your heart because you know he loves you and you know that he's going to provide for you. You can take something that's very important to you and you can give it away because you know that God, you can't outgive God. You, You don't hold on to things. You don't strive. You don't care if someone gets the promotion above you. You can rejoice with them and you can say that's awesome and be glad for them because you know who you serve and you stop your striving. See, it's the Sabbath rest of the heart. And so you see that in Boaz. Here's the nearest kinsman, he's saying, oh wait, that's gonna cost me something. But Boaz, his ambition is for the ambition of God. And so God wants to redeem your ambitions. He wants to take your ambition and the things that you're searching for and working towards and have your ambition be the fame of Jesus Christ. And to make him famous and to make his grace known and to live a life of total freedom and rest that everyone around you is just, they're freaking out because you're not freaking out, you see. So to live redemptively is to live live without self-ambition. And thirdly, to live redemptively is to live sacrificially. So the... The nearest kinsman, the Goel, said, Boaz, it's all yours. The land's all yours. She's all yours. You can marry Ruth. And what I love about that is he took this woman who had nothing. She's an outcast. And two things happened. Not only did he incur, incur upon himself the debt that she had and Naomi. See, they were in debt. They had lost everything. He took the debt. He incurred the debt. And simultaneously, all the wealth that he had became hers. Track with me. He took the debt, and simultaneously, all the wealth that he had became hers. My friends, this is the gospel. This is the gospel. Jesus Christ on the cross, he took my debt. He forgave me of my sins. That's what forgiveness means. It means to cancel the debt. I, I had a debt that I could not pay. And so Jesus, he took my record, and he, it was nailed to the cross. And he satisfied. He became our propitiation, which means that he satisfied the righteous requirements of the Father. God's holy, perfect standard was satisfied through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. He did something that I could never do. And he bore He absorbed within himself every sin that every single person that has ever walked the face of the earth in the history of the world has ever committed. Sins that they've known about and sins sins that they haven't known about. All the evil that I've seen the last two weeks, Jesus bore those sins and he paid anyone who would trust in him receives that forgiveness. But that's only half the gospel. Forgiveness is as o- is, is awesome as forgiveness is, it's only half of it. Forgiveness I- is in the negative. The best way I can... Uh, so he took the debt, but he also, all of his wealth became hers. So canceling the debt, that means forgiveness, but there's another important word that's in the gospel. It's called justification. Because forgiveness is in the negative, justification is in the positive. So not not only did he take my record and die on the cross and he was nailed to the cross but he also gave me his record of perfection. And now in Christ not only am I forgiven, praise God, but also his righteousness is over me. It's on me. And now in Christ positionally, God looks at me and he relates to me as if I had never sinned. And this is the sharp edge. It's like the sharp edge of the knife that we're constantly trying to dull in the gospel because it's just too good to accept. It's just too good to be true that God relates to you right now in Christ. He he relates to you as if you've never sinned. He's relating to you and looking at you just as he relates to his own son, Jesus Christ. He's taken your sin, but he's also given you his righteousness. And there's nothing you have to do to prove anything to God. You have his approval. The same approval that Jesus Christ had you have God's approval. The same acceptance that Jesus, his own son, has, you have that acceptance. Can you receive that? Or is it too good? When when you struggle with that, that's good. You're finally starting to get it. So forgiveness is, we need forgiveness. The debt needs to be canceled, but that's only half the gospel. What we see here is a beautiful picture of the gospel. God has given you his wealth the riches in heaven are all made available to you. And uh, the best way to describe justification is sort of to describe what it's not. <laughs> it's not forgiveness. It's think about a prison, all right? And there's a guy in prison. He's committed a crime. He's guilty. Someone comes along and says, you know, pulls the strings and gets this guy free from prison. So they walk in. They say, the debt's been paid. You're free to go. They open the prison doors. They said, you're free. That's it. And you walk out into the streets and you're like, okay, cool. The debt's been canceled. He's been forgiven of the debt. What, what's he going to do now? Do you ever see guys on TV that they do like 30 years and then they're, okay, they're out, you know, out of prison now. You're like, man, what's the guy going to do? He's an ex-con. He's going to get a job. You know, does he have family? Feel bad for him. So forgiveness is you're let out of the prison. Justification is you're standing there in the prison parking lot, and a limousine drives up with little royal flags on the front. And he pulls up right in front of you, and a chauffeur comes out, and he opens the door, and it's the, it's the king limousine to the king's palace. And he says, come on in to the limo. I'm taking you to the palace where you're going to live the rest of your life and you're going to dine and you're going to eat at the table of the king and you won't have to worry about one thing that's justification and that's the gospel is all the wealth that is in Christ has been given to us but fourthly and finally we live redemptively and this is so important it all starts by being redeemed you see we need to be redeemed Not just redeemed once, but constantly allowing ourselves to be redeemed. The word redeemed means to buy back. And God is constantly trying to take back territory in your heart, territory in your mind, territory that the things that we've squandered, the things that the enemy has taken, the things that we've given away foolishly, God is a redemptive God, and he's constantly trying to take back territory in our lives and redeem it for his glory, and God can take any situation, even our mistakes, and make them redemptive. Only God can do that. Only the gospel can take the junk of our lives and have it speak and point to the glory of God. That's what it means to live redemptively, but it starts with us being redeemed, you see. Notice that it's the book of Ruth, (laughs) It's not the book of Boaz. That's important to me because it's it's all about this woman, Ruth, this Moabite, being redeemed. She's the object of redemption. And do you know that's the kingdom? Every single one of you, you are an object of God's redemptive nature. And you need to see that about God. I want to just close with a, a parable that I think underscores this perfectly, but it's in Matthew 13. And we're gonna put it up for you as well. Matthew 13. It's a famous couple of parables, Matthew 13, 44 through 46. I want you to just now think about this story. Think about just what happened. And and now Boaz and Ruth are going to be married. That the object of his his love is now she's being redeemed. She's going to become his wife. You see, think about that. Then think about these parables. Uh, verse 44: The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up, and then his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who, on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had, and he bought it. Okay, here's Jesus. i red letters in my little iPhone here. Jesus is speaking. People are listening, and he's saying, you want to know what God's like? Do you notice that? He he said, the kingdom of heaven is like. He's actually saying heaven is like, or God is. Here's what God is like. God is like this. There's a treasure in a field, and he buys the whole field so he can have that treasure. See, God is like this. He, he's like a merchant, and he's seeking fine pearls, and he finds one that's gonna cost him everything, but to him it's worth it, and he he gives everything just to have that one pearl. You know what? Ruth was that treasure. Ruth was that pearl. You're that treasure. God gave everything just to have you. Uh, I I think of uh, uh, 1 John chapter 2 when it says that he died not only for our sins but for the sins of the whole world. Jesus came and he died for the sins of the world because you were here and you needed a savior and you have such value to God he would give everything just to have you. This is what God is like. This is the gospel of the kingdom. This is the good news of the gospel. This is... Uh, the redemptive nature of God and this good news that we get to receive for ourselves and proclaim to other people, you're that pearl. You're a pearl that God. Y- you had such value to God, he gave everything just to have you. You know, it's funny. When Jesus was on the cross, I mentioned this. He said, tetelestai, paid in full. It was a word that was used in several different contexts, a, a judge would use this word, tetelestai. When he would put the gavel down on the desk and the judgment m- was made, he'd say, tetelestai, judgment's been made. It'd be a, a word used by an artist who is working on a work of art. And he'd put that one little finishing touch, that one little chisel or that one little brush of the paint, and he'd stand back and he'd say, tetelestai, It's finished that work of art. It was also a word that'd be used by a merchant who, when he found something of great value, he'd bring his money and he'd come to the bargaining table and he'd put it down on the table in exchange for the commodity that he bought. And he would say, "To Tetelestai, paid in full. That's what Jesus came to do, is to buy us back. That's what redemption is all about, you see. But you have to let yourself be found. You know, when my kids were little, um, we used to play a game hide and go seek. And little guys. And my youngest was like three at this time. And I'd count down from 10, three, two, one. And so my three kids, I have two sons and a daughter, they'd run up the stairs. And my oldest son would always find the best hiding place. You know, he'd be like four houses down in 10 seconds. (laughs) My daughter would find, you know, a good hiding place in a closet or somewhere, you know, under the bed. But my youngest son could never find a hiding place. And I always knew this about him. You could just, you could feel the panic. (laughs) You could just feel it. And so I'd walk up the steps, you know, I'd stop. I'd say, here I come. And I could hear the pitter-patter of his feet just running in circles around. (laughs) And it was tense, man. You could cut it with a knife, and I'd get closer and closer, and he just he couldn't find his place, so he'd just plop down in the middle of the room and close his eyes, <laughs> and he'd just be in this little ball, and he's thinking, if I can't see dead, he can't see me, <laughs> and I'd walk around him and say, Seth, <laughs> and he'd try not to look, <laughs> he's trying to, <laughs> and then you grab him, and you tickle him, oh, here he is, and you... Right, and then he laughs, and that's the point of hide and go seek, I guess, you know. What kind of dad would I be? Okay, you guys go hide. Honey, let's go out for dinner, you know. <laughs> <laughs> now, here, the point the funnest part of hide and go seek is being found. Because I think uh, deep down in every single one of us, we long to be found. We wanna be found. Not just by anybody, we wanna be found by somebody that unconditionally loves me by someone who's not going to come down on me, not going to reject me, someone who knows me even better than I know myself and is going to bring me close. And someone who has made a provision that I don't have to live under the things that have crushed my life up to this point. That's Jesus Christ. That's Boaz. He's your Boaz. And he's seeking you out. His, his love is a pursuing love. And he wants to buy you back. And he wants to bring the work of redemption into your life, into your relationships. He wants to take the things that you're living for and your success, your possessions, your life. And he wants to take your life and make you live redemptively in this world until we see him face to face. And to enter into the rest that he's made for us through the gospel to where we can look at even the challenges or, or a time when we, we, we sort of have lost everything and we're like, what's going to happen now? We know God's still on the throne and because we're looking at the gospel, we know that he loves us and that he'll never leave us because if he did that, why would I question him now? Only the gospel can lead a person into a true rest. See, this is the, the context. This is the, the spirit, if you will. It's like the core value of the kinsman redeemer, the year of jubilee, the Sabbath rest of our Lord Jesus Christ. But to live redemptively, man, you've got to let yourself be redeemed. You Let him find you. Let him find you this morning, because he's already seeking you, and he's already done it all to redeem you back. That's the love of our God, and that's his redemptive nature. Can we pray together? Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your uh, very difficult to describe grace and love. Lord, even now, as I try <laughs> to express how deep your love is for us, I don't have the words i it, it's 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 too amazing, it's too wonderful. so Lord. I pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would just come now and minister to every heart here in this place. Lord, we've got a lot of brokenness. We've, we've got some hopelessness. We, Lord, we just give you everything. We surrender completely to you. We let you find us. Lord, we thank you for the things that we do have. We thank you for the material blessings and relational blessings and all these things. But, Lord, ultimately they're all for you. And if, if we're living, striving to hold it all together, we're, we're never going to find peace. Our, our lives are going to be just tossed to and fro emotionally, depending on those things. But I thank you that you are a rock. You're our anchor, Lord. So we let you just find us and we surrender to you. Lord, take my life. Take my past. Take my present. Take my future. And I thank you that you you have good intentions. And because your very nature is to redeem and restore, that you have something far beyond what I can even... Hope or think or imagine. So I give it to you. Give my heart to you. Lord, I give you this situation that I came in this morning with that I was couldn't even sleep last night because I'm so worried. I give you that, Lord. I give you this relationship. Lord, we give you this job that we hope to get. Lord, you, you know, and you're our provider. So, Lord, we just want you to be at the very center of all who we are and all that you've given to us. In Jesus' name, amen.